I'm not a gamer, but I've thought about entrepreneurship and about the phases. It's almost like you need a new skill set in each new level of the game, right? So in the beginning, maybe it's really, really, really storytelling, and that's always great and relevant. But there are times when the skill is about gathering your team and, and growing the team. There are times when it's about honing the team and maybe pruning. You know, there's different stuff that comes up at each phase. I will say at the very beginning, you know, you only have to be right enough to <laughs> begin and like just go with eyes wide open knowing you're gonna get a lot wrong and that's that's cool it's totally good you you don't have to apologize for it you just refine and iterate and keep listening and learning and changing you know um adjusting little little parts until you refine the thing And, and when you hit that sweet spot of getting enough right the world sees it and says oh this makes sense to me i like this i see something here that i'm drawn to our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question How do you change the entire way people view a particular topic or problem? The answer? one story at a time. And we've all been in situations where we're trying to create change, either in our own lives, in our organizations, or for some in the world at large. And for many, one of the biggest barriers of those missions isn't what you would imagine, which would be, you know, finding a great solution to an important problem. Instead, the biggest barrier is working through the unspoken fears and judgments we all have about the problem itself. The overwhelm that comes with addressing climate change, the the fear and reluctance that comes with talking about domestic violence, the hopelessness and a sense of being given homework that's doomed to fail, that can come with helping the poor and the disadvantaged. Now that last barrier and those last words were some that my guest today started thinking about very early in her life. That guest is Jessica Jackley, and she's the co-founder of Kiva, which was the world's first person-to-person micro-lending platform, and now the founder of Altruists, a subscription for at-home volunteer and giving projects for families. Now, every once in a while, a handful of times a year, I am lucky enough to get to speak to someone who was on my original wish list for the podcast. One of the humans that when we first posed the question, when the the team and I first sat down in those early production meetings and we asked ourselves, how can we decode influence in a way that's relevant to the world that we live in now? Those names I wrote down, those names that came immediately to mind and today's guest, Jessica, was on that original list. Now, I initially came across Kiva and Jessica 10 years ago. I was questioning the effectiveness of donating money to charity and that, you know, is a very personal journey in and of itself. And I was looking for a way to give that just felt more useful and and more engaged. And that's when Kiva came on my radar. Now, the idea of Kiva itself is really simple. Create an account, put in a small amount of money and lend that money out to entrepreneurs around the world who are trying to build a business that could support them, their families, and their communities for the rest of their lives. They then replay that money over a series of months, and boom, you do it again. Now, for me, it wasn't about the fact that the money got paid back. It was about the amplification that was possible. It was about the fact that the money kept moving. It kept helping. More abundance and support just created more abundance and support, and so on. Every time somebody paid back a loan, I got to take that money and give it to somebody else. And on a personal, maybe selfish note, I got to hear the stories. I got to hear from the woman that I was helping, learn about her community. I got to read her plans for the business that she wanted to create and what it meant for her family. And I fell instantly in love. 
to the point where the same year, my husband-to-be and I decided to forego all our wedding gifts and ask every single person to donate instead to our Kiva account. Fast forward to today, 10 years later, still married to the same man. And since then, Kiva has facilitated over $1 billion in microloans. Now that is mind-blowing enough, but listen to this. $1 billion in microloans at a repayment rate of 98.5%. Now it's important to remember that these aren't huge loans. The average contribution is around $100. So in some quick math, that's approximately 10 million individual contributions, 10 million moments of giving that continued to be regiven over and over again. The scale and the impact of which is just kind of impossible to quantify. But today's conversation isn't about the money. It's not even about the role of microfinance or micro donations to solve some of our largest humanitarian issues. It's about stories. In Jessica's words, the stories we tell each other matter very much. The way that we participate in each other's stories matters even more. In today's conversation, we dive into the difference between trying to solve any problem from a place of hope rather than a place of hopelessness. The moment that led her to quit her job, move to Africa and interview micro entrepreneurs that had each received $100 to build or grow their business. Essentially the moment that changed the trajectory of her entire life. What she has learned about building a $1 billion movement from scratch with no business experience, including the energy and momentum that comes from being able to speak in present tense. Now, you'll understand this more as the conversation continues and it's a subtle one, but it is huge. Think, think about the difference between saying, this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm doing. The difference in momentum that comes with those two sentences. How storytelling has the power to define and then redefine some of the most important topics of our time. And finally, how her experiences over the past 15 years have shaped her views on the way that we participate in the stories of other people. And again, we live in a world of storytelling right now. We absorb more stories every day than we know what to do with via social media, via the news, via conversations. And it's not the amount of stories that we consume that defines our lives or the lives of other people. It's how we choose to participate in each other's stories. What I, what I took from this conversation is the kinetic potential of storytelling. How the stories we tell literally shift the state of those that receive them. And if those stories are disconnected, disempowered, or hopeless in their foundations, then we might get a nod, we might get a donation or maybe a signature, but the energy and the action quickly stops. However, if those stories are creative, empowered, and hopeful, then we stand a very strong chance of getting momentum. And if we started telling more of those stories, how much more willing might people be to get and stay involved in the problems that we are trying to solve? How quickly could you get to your own version of 10 million contributions? Now, for those of you who have some big visions for 2022 and are looking for a kickstart as a hot off the press announcement, I will be running my last ever live Rapid Authority Masterclass in late January 2022. It will be a virtual event. We will be working on the timings to make sure that as many people can tune in from as many places around the world, time zones allowing. Why is it my last ever? Well, more on that in another announcement. There's some big, exciting things coming. However, if you want to make sure that you're on the wait list for what will be my last ever live masterclass, the last one I ever run live, head onto my website, www.juliemasters.com and register your details to be the first to know. Also, don't forget my newsletter, Influence Insider. It gives you one bite-sized tool, strategy or mindset shift per week, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto my website to become an insider. On that note, sit back, drive safe, stride on, and get ready for one of the most visionary game changers in her space, a woman that I have been waiting to interview for over 10 years. Jessica Jackley.
Welcome to the podcast, Jessica Jackley. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you. And I'm also really grateful because you have a, a 20 month old right now. So just the fact that you're not sleeping is, is a miracle. <laughs> well, we had it under control. And then as it always goes, as soon as you think you understand the new normal in parenting, it shifts. So yeah, we're dealing with uh, two-year molars and more wake-ups than recently. <laughs> so yeah, we're hanging in, we're hanging in. And the three others are just, they're sleeping at least. So that's good. Well, we have that. Do you know what? I think that's the big thing, right? If you can sleep, you can you pretty can much do anything. anything. But if exactly, you're not sleeping, exactly. yeah, wheels off the bus. <laughs> um, I'm going to kick off the way that I usually kick off the podcast. And that is to ask you if there's one, is there one idea that's just having a lot of influence on you and your thinking right now or an idea that's just really hit you? And the reason I ask that is because people who have amazing ideas that make a difference in the world often find amazing ideas before the rest of us. So over to you, what one idea has really had an impact on you? It's such a fun question. I love it. And, um, you know, when you said oftentimes people will, will find ideas first, it, I don't know. I think there's definitely that version of the story, right? That, that people see and discover and like draw a circle around ideas first. I would say probably more often than not, I hang back and like to look at the world and maybe re-notice things. They're all, it's all there. Lately, that's been the case for me. Um, so sometimes they're new, sometimes it's already there and I'm, I'm circling back. And I would say lately, I've been just obsessing about the volunteer economy and thinking about the exchange of value there. And it's it's really fun. So you have 90% of people that say they want to volunteer more. Now that, whether that's just aspirational and you know, people just wanna say that, it's a high number, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a large percentage of us that have this desire to contribute more as a volunteer. So offering for free our time, our talents, our insights, um, our experiences. I look at the exchange of value. So. First of all, why don't people do that more? They, there's, you know, I'll, I'm citing different studies and, and research, but in short, the summary is it's hard to find opportunities, hard to schedule opportunities. They're not all that exciting. It's the same old like three things. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the funny responses to one of the surveys I read was no one asked me. So there's this power of invitation, specific invitation, but there's also this fifth thing that's sort of floating around that I've, I've noticed and experienced myself and seen out there in the research, which is, even though parents, in particular single moms, are like the at volunteering at the highest rates, let's I mean wrap your mind around that one, it's really difficult to bring kids to traditional volunteer, you know, service projects, service activities. So you put all that together, you kind of look at that, and then you think about when people actually do make it out to volunteer. So there's let's back up, there's the segment of people that want to volunteer in art, and here are all the reasons, and there's the people that are volunteering, and when they do show up. They're, they're making this big effort, right? They're overcoming a bunch of those barriers. They're showing up anyway, and they're giving. <laughs> they're giving themselves away. What are they getting in return? What's the exchange? And it's often very, um, it's like in the eyes of the beholder. So they might end up leaving and just feeling good because they made a connection with another human being. Amazing. Maybe they just have a deep belief that they're, um, you know, their contribution was a part of something so much bigger than them. And that's tied into how they see the world and how they want to show up and their purpose. And there's a lot of meaning that is imbued that is they just kind of put on the experience by the volunteer. Now, take that, put it on a shelf for just a second. Let's go to the other side of the equation. <laughs> this will be a little bit of a long answer, but it's, it's good. It's good. It's worth it. So the nonprofit side of thing of things, right? Nonprofits, NGOs, these organizations exist out in the world. And there's a set of things, a set, you know, in which there's a set of things that are useful, the thing, tasks that can be done by other people, by volunteers, unpaid, that are actually helpful. There's another set of tasks that's just like donor grooming in disguise. There's, there's all sorts of things floating around. I mean, sometimes volunteers can be burdensome. Sometimes nonprofit professionals will roll their eyes even just thinking about it. I get it. It can be just another thing to organize and do that's not mission critical. So it can go either way. But even if there's an organization out there that figures out how to engage volunteers that want to help, and to parse out these useful tasks and activities, even if they get that far, usually it stops around there and there's a little bit of thought around the experience itself. They're sort of like, 
listed on a you know uh, some pl a platform like maybe one of these or one of these websites that connects volunteers to nonprofits so they'll just kind of be listed out please show up and do this thing thank you so much maybe there's some follow-up and some thank you um you know some correspondence or something that sort of closes the loop on it but again it's kind of under the category of maybe potential donor grooming or something else it's the point is nonprofits often don't have the bandwidth let alone the expertise to really design an experience that is thoughtful about what the volunteer wants to get out of it. Now, it sounds backwards, right? Well, why are we, why would I want to live in that space in the middle? Why, I, I am so interested and eager to try to reinvent, repackage experiences to activate volunteers that, you know, would be volunteers and then to catalyze volunteers that want, that are already showing up and figuring it out, but that want an experience that is like the most inspiring, the most, um, sort of well-packaged, if you will, literally and otherwise, where there's an educational component and there's empathy building. And, you know, you think about what would be the ideal elements of that connection. There's the, a really helpful, interesting, maybe new and creative activity to do, action to take, you know, work to be done. So they're contributing. And then imagine if there's also a donation that's already wrapped into it. I mean, volunteers are twice as likely to give anyway. So there's, there's a lot there. And then Imagine if there was sort of a path right now, it's it's a small path that we've created in my new startup, but imagine if there's a path to greater involvement. So stepping back, the thing I'm thinking about a lot is volunteer economy, the exchange of value in this sort of wild west of like this mob of willing volunteers, the world wants to help and nonprofits that don't always have, they're not in the position to design a really amazing experience for volunteers. What would happen if you could take the time and energy and resources to do that and to design that really thoughtfully? No. There's so much in what you just in in what you in what you just <laughs> That's about. An answer. You're so patient. yeah. The, the, have you ever heard of Time Bank? You heard of Time Bank? I think maybe tell me more. So Time Bank, I don't have a whole lot of details. It was it was started by the woman who began um, Red Nose Day in the UK. Okay, which is okay. really big in the UK. She now lives in New Zealand, I think, and she started this thing called Time Bank, and it was the first one that I had come across. It's about ten years ago now. First one that I had come across that had attempted to put these two pools of, of people together. Okay. Um, so I don't, I don't know how they did it, yeah. but I remember thinking at the time, wow, like that it's, there does seem to be a pool of resources here and there does yes. seem to be a need and very yes. little way to bring those two things together. The other thing that I just took out of what you said is the amount of times you said the words, imagine if. Imagine yes. if, imagine if, yeah, like starting from, and that's where all, that's where all things begin, right? Like that sense of cure, of insatiable curiosity, of wonder, of hopefulness, of the place of imagine if, imagine if that, and then that, and then imagine what that could look like. And it doesn't sound like you're even in a place of answers yet. No, I, I mean, so this is as far as we've gotten. So I, you look at that space and, and you try to hone in on, or this is what we altruists, my little spectacular team of um, four people now, but we're trying to think hard about what would it look like to provide a way for families to volunteer and to remove all those barriers that exist, not just for them, but for, for other would-be volunteers. So what if you could volunteer, let's say within an hour, think about attention span of kids <laughs> and actually do something useful. What if you could do it any time it works for naps and snacks and all the schedules that you juggle with little kids. So anytime, anywhere, right? Um, with really anyone, even little tiny people. And so what we've done is create, we've created, there's, there's sort of two paths to the experience. One is just single, you know, experiences, single boxes based on a particular issue. You can kind of get one at a time as your family is ready to, to do them, or you sign up for a subscription where it's this regular practice for your family. But in either case, we've designed a box <laughs> that arrives and the box, like it's a using all the parts of the Buffalo sort of experience. So it's in many cases, a disappearing box, which is rare in the world of subscription boxes, right? It's often very wasteful, but we have this beautifully, you know, carbon neutrally shipped box throughout the U.S. to families with five main pieces to the experience. And they're very much what I said before. It's there's a learn piece. There's a connect piece. Um, act, the actual project itself, a volunteer project that you can do with kids. Give $5 from every box is already set aside and goes to the nonprofit that's the partner for that particular issue and, and topic. And then a do more section that has other activities and this path to greater involvement. So 
we are such a little tiny baby company, but we've knocked out four of these so far. We have our fifth one pretty much done and getting, you know, sent all the pieces sent to the warehouse. So we're right at the beginning, but we've done a box on homelessness. We've done a box on bees, saving the pollinators, right? We've done a box on um, refugees. We've done a box on hunger, well, food insecurity, technically. We have one on clean water coming in December and so many more planned for the next, you know, into the future. But the idea is if you have kids 10 and under or so, it's testing pretty well with bigger kids too, but if you have one kid, three kids, however many, 10 and under, you can get this box and as a family work through um, taking action together. And before, what I, what I really love about it, I mean, it's funny, there's so much in it. There's actual stuff and activities and sometimes little tools or toys or treasures like as keepsakes for the kids. So spoiler in the clean water box, there's a life straw type thing, right? It's There's fun gadgets and stuff sometimes. Um, but there's also these five little, I'm, I keep staring over off to the side because I have my stack of all our books from previous boxes that I reference very frequently. But you get five little booklets, like the learn book. It's the facts and the fun facts and not so fun facts about this big issue in the world, right? And then connect is empathy building. You get stories of kids who have encountered this issue probably very differently than the kids working on the volunteer projects have you know, encountered it. Um, the volunteer activities, the heart of it is uh, there's so, what we're trying to do is really reinvent, recreate uh, activities. So sometimes there will be, like I said, in the set of things that are helpful that the nonprofit has already identified, we'll pick something there and just make it awesome, right? So um, let's think, you know, we worked with a, um, a nonprofit called Bee Girl, and of course she encourages people to do all sorts of things to care for pollinators, but we make the box turn into, you kind of craft it into this gorgeous little pollinator hotel. So the box becomes a thing. There's like not, there's no waste with it. You literally do it and then there's nothing to recycle or throw away. It's very bizarre. It's a bizarre feeling, an amazing feeling. With other nonprofits, though, we'll, we'll make up new things that, you know, will come out from brainstorming and, and listening to each other. So for the homelessness box, kids make a keychain that is then mailed to our partner in Mexico. And they build new houses for families. And right as the new families move into the home, the house key is handed to them on this beautiful keychain that kids have made for them with love and with a little note. Things like that. So I could go on and on. I love geeking out on product, but it's... Um, we're trying to create new things that are legit, helpful, uh, and good, and also really engaging and beautiful and walk people through an experience where at the end they are informed, you know, that their heads and their hearts and their hands, everything's sort of been activated. And it's, it's a lovely, I think it's a pretty lovely experience so far. I want to backtrack here sure. a little bit because everything that you've just talked about there, which is taking taking agency, those who have the agency to do something and the willingness and the want to do something and connecting them with somebody else who has the agency and the willingness and the want and connecting them through stories and a journey that you've pre-planned. Everything you're talking about there is exactly, feels like exactly what you did with Kiva. And I want to dive into Kiva because Kiva is where I came across you and your work, um, I saw you speak, I think it was 10 years ago in Australia. Oh, my um, When you came, when, when was it? Yeah. Yes. I, mean, I always mark time with my kids. The, the twins were like one and a half, and I know because we didn't have to play for their tickets yet. <laughs> so that was about my new year. <laughs> I always mark it by who had to sit on my lap. Right, right. Because they weren't I allowed to sit on overnight flights with them. Yeah, exactly. I remember their tiny little bodies. You know, yeah, so, you yeah. always remember the flights where someone has had to sit on your lap for 12 hours. Yeah, absolutely. How could you bet? <laughs> so, I, you know, I first, I first saw you speak then, and I think I already, I, I came to see you speak because I had already come across Kiva and had become a huge fan. So, I want to go way, 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 way back, mm -hmm. way, way back to when you were six years old and, and just start the journey there for a minute because I think it sets a beautiful context around this. And so you, I have heard you say that when you were six years old, you started hearing stories about the poor. Mm -hmm. And what fascinated me is you said, you know, the more I learned about it, about the subject, the more it felt like a homework assignment that I would always fail. That seems like a very big thought for a six-year-old. Tell me why, why it felt that way to, to your little, little self at the time. Your, your questions are just so lovely. And I feel, you know, you sometimes talk to people and feel instantly seen and known. And I just, I need to just tell you, you're really good. You're really good at this. So tapping right into <clears throat> the heart of things. I love it. So 
I remember sitting in Sunday school and hearing different scriptures thrown out there that, you know, of course I misinterpreted wildly, but whatever. It, it, it was my experience at the time. And I remember hearing both in a very, in, in close proximity, you know, chronologically, I remember hearing both that the poor would always be with us. So there's the failure part. Like on one hand, we're supposed to serve and help, but it's always, poverty will always be around. So what is that like? What, what, what does that mean? And at the same time, I remember hearing what you do for these, the least of these you do for me. So it's pretty important to try to do something. It's like serving God. It's helping out the divine. I mean, my gosh, that's what other kind of calling could you ever find that is grander than that, right? So I remember thinking, well, I have to try. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, but go get them. I don't know. It's very confusing to me. Uh, and that's, you know, maybe misinterpreted, maybe not. But I, I think... It is true suffering will always exist. It's also true things can shift and change and it still matters along the way what we attempt to do. And as I as I grew up, I mean, look, I, I know, I, I look back at even how I thought and spoke about this a decade ago and I probably, it's probably a little bit messy even, you know, even 10 years ago and I'm probably going to look back at this conversation and think, oh, I used the wrong word here or there and I, I otherized by doing, you know, this, having this sort of framing of the situation, but here I am imperfect, doing my best to wrap my mind around it even today, <laughs> 40, 40 years later almost. I think what really bothered me and still bothers me is this dissonant sort of, um, you know, here's the reality of the sadness or, and, of the world, the brokenness of the world. It's intense. The statistics are mind numbing and heartbreaking, right? Like there's a lot of people out there with a lot of hurt, full stop. And then so many organizations uh, or individuals or whatever, there's this task of both like sharing truth of, you know, the reality of the world, but also not freaking people out so much that they run away with their, you know, plugging their ears, not wanting to hear the rest of the sentence. And that's real. I get that. But there's, I think it undermines a lot of the calls to action are so small in comparison to what really needs to happen. And here I am having kids making keychains and stuff. It's a start, right? It's something. It's not, it's not going to maybe move the needle on homelessness, but it is something to activate and awaken that sense of curiosity and the reality that even small things do matter. And you got to start somewhere, right? There's so all these things are true at the same time. So yes, the suffering and the, the amount of suffering in the world is enormous. And also, yes, it may not go away. And also, yes, it matters what you do with small things, big things. I think hearing like, you know, bad news, bad news, terrible statistic, but don't worry. All we need is the cost of a cup of coffee, your spare change every day. You won't even feel it. It's just weird, right? It's this very strange um, request that comes after you know, the, the reality of other people's lives being in, you know, in jeopardy or in, in danger or in a, in a very broken place. Um, I don't want to be a person that just doesn't even notice I'm giving. I mean, we talked earlier really quickly about like rounding up. I think that's a, like legit. I think it'd be better if at the supermarket, instead of, hey, round up to the nearest dollar, you won't even notice <laughs> to, hey, I see you bought Thanksgiving dinner. Why don't you buy another family's Thanksgiving dinner? Can you do that if you're able here you go. Like, why not ask that? Why not ask for something a little more or bigger? And not to make, I, I don't like to operate with, it's not about guilt or shame or like, there's no, I don't want it to be a pressure situation, but that's a beautiful grand opportunity, right? It's a, it's a beautiful opportunity to step and do, and do step up and do something. I think we want those opportunities too. We don't just want to be in the easy, quick, you won't even know what happened. It's also a beautiful question. You know, you've bought you've you've bought Thanksgiving dinner for your family. You've bought Christmas dinner for your family. How would you like to would you like to buy a Christmas dinner for somebody else? It's a beautiful question. Yeah. Because for someone to say yes, I'd love to do that right. or actually no, I give in other ways and you know, I'm I'm comfortable with that. It's it's still a beautiful question and I think to be asked the question in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. And I want to make that distinction because, 
you know, to be stopped on the street sometimes feels overwhelming. You know, you, you're on your way, you've got 3.5 right. minutes to go and buy bread and get the children on time. Uh-huh. You know, to, be, <laughs> to be asked in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. And and I also want to dig into something you said there about this feeling of giving, but you won't feel it. And you you had said that after that you know, experience at the age of six, you started giving as a part of life because you felt called to and it seemed like a big job and something that you were able to do. But you said this, you said, I gave not out of a sense of hope. I gave not out of a sense of hope. And that really hit me because I thought, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly how it does feel. Mm-hmm. You give not without a sense of hope. You give because it feels like almost a tithing. It gives like, yeah, it's a tax on the happiness and abundance that I have, but I have no hope in my heart that it's going to make much of a difference. What, what is that distinction? So that's how that feels. Talk to me about the opposite of that. Talk to me about where you eventually ended up with what's possible here. Yeah. Yeah. And to, I mean, again, thank you for seeing and hearing the, this, this, the sentiments in, and in my journey. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it and I appreciate you so much. So I did used to feel that way. I felt confused. I felt like, well, okay, I guess I'll do these small things and being asked to do, cause they're all small, but why not? Here's my spare change. And I didn't feel sure that that would do anything of lasting good, but why not do it? And why not? I mean, truthfully, like, sure. Easy way to feel a little bit better about myself and then move on. That was unsatisfying over time. And I think that goes on for a lot of people for sometimes lifetimes. Like I only, um, I got too annoyed with it after like a decade or two. And the thing that shifted for me, look, I'm not, I'm not anti-giving. I'm not anti-giving small things, big things. It's great. I felt like the thing that shifted for me was reframing potential, reframing not only who might be a recipient of a donation, of a loan, of anything, right? Just the recipient of a, of a, of a resource or of some help, some assistance, Um, but when you reframe who that person is, it reframes who you get to be too. And I didn't just want to be the person that painlessly, sometimes thoughtlessly gave extra because I was so ridiculously lucky and blessed in my life. I wanted to be, I wanted a relationship. I wanted more of a connection. I wanted that to be a real exchange that, that had meaning. Cause I think you suck the meaning out of it for people when it's just, you know, part of the machine of, of how their, their, how daily life unfolds. Now, I also like the idea, by the way, if we could build it into more machines, great. Let's do that. That's great. More like no matter what happens, even if you do forget, even if you are thoughtless that day about it, you're walking around on the planet and stuff just happens. Like you've decided that's what will, what it will be. Every time you buy the Thanksgiving dinner, you've already pre decided you're going to buy someone else. Great. Like let's make it more automatic as well. But these moments of intention super selfishly change us. And these moments of getting to play a different role in the life of someone else, I think are a real gift. It's, it's, it's always selfish. It's always going to end up being selfish. So spoiler, but um, instead of having the role of when you get around to it, when it's painless, when it, when you don't notice it, when you have extra, throw your change in the jar, instead of being that, getting to be a partner in someone else's story and someone else's success, because you see them as an equal, you see them as somebody full of potential, just like you are. It changes the entire equation. And that happened for me. It's not like it was the, the, it's not like it is the silver bullet for all things. But for me, I sort of saw something different when I heard stories of entrepreneurship that were very different than the kind of entrepreneurship I'd seen a lot in Silicon Valley. I just didn't understand it could be so different. I didn't understand that a lot of people, a lot of, in a lot of places in the world that I had only heard heard um, described or, you know, talked about as potential charity cases for me, you know, really, I suddenly was, was hearing in the context of learning about microfinance and microcredit specifically, I was hearing about them and their lives as um, entrepreneurial journeys. And as I heard about them as like business people, as individuals who were capable and strong and smart and hardworking and maybe hadn't had access to education the same way I had, maybe hadn't had access to credit the way I had for sure. They just needed opportunity the way that I had that opportunity. That's a very different message than a lot of um, what we hear, I think, from the majority of 
organizations that, I mean, God bless them, right? That want to help out of a, out of a great place, out of a great intention. But the messaging is the messaging itself. The stories themselves can turn into perpetuating stereotypes and ending up being damaging and limiting, not just the recipient's potential in the eyes of the would-be donor, but limiting the way that that, that person, the donor, the contributor could be activated. It's the, and, and again, I've heard you say this before, it's the difference about telling stories of empty hands versus telling stories of full hands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the story of the empty hand feels endless sometimes. Mm-hmm. It feels like no matter how much you put in the hand, there's more hands. It's a sense, it, it's a distancing. You end up distancing yourself from the entire thing because it feels like just a drop in the ocean that will make no difference. But the story of the full hand, the story of the creativity of another human being, of the agency of another human being, of another human being who's doing incredible things, building a business, and you can just make a small contribution to that and they can take it to the next level and then turn that into even more for their community. You know, that, like even the energy of that story is completely different. I think it's a good time right now just to talk a, a very little bit, if you can soundbite it as possible to soundbite it, about what microfinance is. Absolutely. So if that's a new term for anybody listening, think about think about the um, services and products that you can access at your own bank. This is a good way to, I think, imagine it. And then imagine how all those might be altered to fit the needs of somebody living on, on a few dollars a day, for example. So the word micro is, um, you know, it's, Correct, because perhaps micro lending, a micro loan is a loan that's 25 bucks or 100 bucks, as opposed to the probably thousands of dollars of a loan funding that maybe you might be able to access at your retail bank. And then there's micro insurance, there's micro savings accounts. There, it's just financial services that are uh, hopefully, usually um, thoughtfully sort of designed, tailored to the needs of people with very different economic, uh, with very different means. Micro credit in particular is really really captured my interest in my heart when I first learned about it, because when the earliest sort of pioneers of microcredit started out, they were taking a bet on human beings just because they believed those human beings were worthwhile and would repay because it was sort of a life or death decision for them. Um, And that proved out. So, you know, usually you have to have money to make money, have money to get money, have collateral to get other resources and early, early microfinance, microcredit um, experiments just required different ways of thinking, different, they, they thought differently about that. So whether it meant grouping people together in small groups where everyone would sort of um, have each other's back. So if one would not repay, the others would cover that. Um, that's one way of doing it in group lending. There's lots of other ways, but it's basically, you know, saying that it's worth all the work and energy it might take to lend to a person who might have very little to show for themselves and no collateral collateral to speak of, but giving them an opportunity to take a, a, a loan of maybe 50 bucks, something you know very small compared to probably most listeners, <laughs> um, the experiences of most listeners, but doing it because they actually have turned out to be incredibly wonderful borrowers um, because it really matters and can make such a substantial difference and just shift the trajectory so much at that early stage, right? They, they, they're able to get on the first round of the economic ladder and go from there. So it turned out to be the, the correct bet. And some of the some of the stats on that are just mind-blowing. I mean, again, just for a context piece, we're talking about, you know, one in the case, in the case of Kiva, and we're going to get into the genesis of Kiva in a second, but the we're talking about one human being lending to another human being by listening to their story about what they want to create or what they've already created and what they, where they want to take it to, often in increments of about $100, 50 to $100, and the repayment rates on those loans. So that person then pays you back over time. The repayment rates of those loans, and 98.5% was the stat that I had. Now, I don't know how many people out there who are listening either work in banks yeah. or run banks <laughs> Good business. but you know what I mean you take that repayment rate 98.5 percent of all those loans get paid back now is that because it's human to human is it because it's you know I know your story you're a person to me and you become a person to me is that the key you know it's funny that's what Kiva um what I've always dreamed and and wondered about with Kiva like Money is money, but if it's money plus community, if it's money plus people that know your story and are rooting for you, does it does it change things? Um, I don't know that that's the case, but I do know that 
there's a lot of education. There's a lot of shepherding and handholding, not in a negative way, but there's, it's, there are a lot of these organizations that are, that are starting people off on these loans, you know, providing their very first loan that's very small. It's not just walk into the bank and get it. It's, it's a, it's, there's a lot of work leading up to it and during, you know, throughout to troubleshoot, maybe redirect. If there's a late repayment, they, they oftentimes will like swoop in and try to figure out how to make sure that doesn't happen again. So there's, there's a lot of goodness there that I've seen. Now, there's critics too. We can go there. I think just Google stuff. It's fine. Do some research if you want to read the, the downfalls of microfinance and microcredit as well. Um, it, those exist. But what I saw, the spirit of what I saw was, this person deserves to have access to an, an opportunity, to a chance to grow their day-to-day business activities that maybe they've never even seen as business activities per se before. They're just, they're, they're a farmer, they're doing what they do, but a small loan could help them expand. You know, they're, um, they, they could rent a plow and they could uh, buy fertilizer and increase the yield. And then suddenly they've kind of kickstarted this little machine that would provide a sustainable livelihood for them. So. Anyway, back to repayment rates, it's, they're, it's, they're always high. And I think it has a lot to do with many of the wonderful mission-centered um, organizations that provide these small loans. Not all of them are great. Not all of them are that way, but many that I've encountered are. And I, I think they deserve a lot of the credit, no pun intended, or maybe it wasn't intended, a lot of the credit for like helping make sure people who are receiving their very first loan succeed. I'm sorry, where else can you find humor in like talking about poverty and microfinance? There's- I mean, that was genius. That's the only that, that was That was a genius pun. It's downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to talk about the, about, about how Kiva began sure. now. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the story a little bit and please stop me if I, if there's anything that I have missed. Um, you, so you learned about microfinance, that, <clears throat> that term came into your world, the understanding of what was possible, the change of the story from despair to one of hope. And, then, and I laugh when I say this, because then you, you quit your job and you moved to Africa, which seems like a, a very extreme move to, <laughs> to make, um, it did not seem that way to me for whatever it's worth. I later went back to business school and learned that I'm apparently very risk tolerant, but I didn't know that terminology. It just sounded like a fun adventure. So I did that. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a, a beautiful move. And, and you went and you you started interviewing some of the entrepreneurs. You started interviewing some of the people that you were just talking about that might not even know the word entrepreneur or have, have heard that word before. They're just doing what they do. They're taking care of their family. They're creating amazing things. Um. You started interviewing them about the difference that some of these loans were making. And then you went home and sent an email out to everybody that you know. Can you talk a little bit about that first step there? Yes. So first, there was a bit of a gap of time. I mean, sometimes the story is fast forwarded for the sake of not being boring with all the kind of dead months. But basically, the first trip that led to some of those what if, what if, you know, imagine if, kind of thoughts and questions, um, you know, there, there was almost a year that passed between that trip and these little inklings of, you know, ideas that would turn into Kiva and the actual trip, again, almost a year later that led to the first round of loans. So I want to say that because sometimes we may have an insight, like, I think this idea could happen. I think it's possible. There might be people that don't just want to donate and don't want to make an interest-bearing investment, but would lend their money for free to other people, well, through the microfinance institutions, but then two specific individuals. This might be a thing. And it's not just that my co-founder Matt and I sat back and thought about it for nine, 10 months. We started to ask people what they thought we were. We, I mean, really I started cold calling. I'm, a, I'm very good at stalking people. It's one of my few professional like skills, but so I, it's my right? number one, right? it's how this podcast started. It's how my first business started. Yep. I have, I'm a stalking pro. Politely ask for what you want in a specific honoring, respectful way. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't actually remember. I'm sure I've gotten no's, but I don't really remember them. Like there's not a lot of them usually because you make the asks really small and specific, right? Will you talk to me for 10 minutes? Let me run this one idea by you. And then it turns into 30 or an hour and it's great. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I remember that, that time between the first visit and the second where we actually took pictures. I, I would take pictures and write down the stories of seven entrepreneurs that needed three or $500 each, our first seven, you know, loan recipients. The time between the first and second trip, we were 
I mean, there were a lot of no's in those conversations, not a lot of, of um, you know, rejections in terms of getting a bit of time and, and feedback from people, but it was such a weird new idea at the time. It doesn't seem that way now, you know, almost what, 20 years later, which is crazy to talk about, but <sighs> nonprofit professionals, a, a, a lot of them would say things like, well, people want a tax deductible donation. Um, this doesn't make sense. Or a lot of, um, a lot of people that knew the legal landscape better than we did were very worried about how this might be a security and what should we do with that? How would it be regulated? All fair points. Um, so we, we had we, we ended up with more questions than we started with. But then at some point uh, we thought, you know what? <laughs> Let's just try it anyway. We're going to figure it out as we go. And if it's a 0% loan, as far as we knew, we were kind of cold calling the SEC as well. We, we did not think it would be regulated in a way that would require, you know, an accounting firm to go audit somebody or to report on um, the exchange. So we just figured out we would we would do a very small specific thing and see what happened next. And in, when you look at um, the size of that first pilot round of loans, it's not like it proved an idea or proved, it was not something that proved the scalability. It was not something that proved much, but what was great was that we started to be able to use present tense, not this strange, like maybe someday we will try this experiment. We were able to say, we're doing this. This is happening. Um, we have a platform where you can go and look at loan needs of other wonderful human beings that might need a few hundred dollars and try it out. What do you say? That was very different. There's a different kind of response that happens when you're able to move into present tense and just start as tiny as that step might be. And I, I loved that moment. Truthfully, it was as exciting, those first, you know, $3,100 that came through. And we, we didn't even have, I mean, we, think about this. We did not even have online payment processing at the time. Like my grandma handed me a 20. I mean, it was a little silly, but we got it done. And those first days and weeks and months were as exciting as, you know, the year when we crossed a hundred million or the year when we crossed a billion or just these, these crazy things that happened later. It was fun and exciting at the beginning when because we were starting to move forward. We're, we were, we were in motion. So there's, I'm just thinking about what you were saying there about the present tense and it's beautiful language because I haven't heard it put that way before, but I always think of it as the boldness, you know, there's, there's a boldness to crossing the line between the question and the messy version one of the answer. And when that happens, there's some kind of energy that, that happens that starts attracting other people that maybe had the question but didn't quite know the answer and your answer isn't perfect but it's better than the no answer that I have. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's this energy that starts building things from mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Now, to, to spoiler, I mean, you've said the word a billion just to give people, again, an idea of the trajectory of what, what came next. So you, I think I've got here that in your, um, in your first year, you facilitated $500,000 in loans. Yeah. Second year, $15 million. Third year, 40 million. Fourth year, 100 million. You just use the word a billion. You cross that line now. Now, in terms of scale and reach, and this is how this conversation started between you and I, you know, the idea that you can take an incredible idea and kind of propel it at scale through storytelling and connection and collaboration and mapping out the journey for people so that it's not frictionless but easier. What have you learned, that those are my words, but what have you learned about building a movement at scale, at, at spreading an idea at scale, not just an, an, an idea that builds awareness, but an idea that actually creates action? Well, another lovely question. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm sort of stuck now back in those super early days. And I, I think at each phase, there's sort of a new trick. It's It's like a I'm not a person that does any video games or anything. I look, does the video games that plays games. I'm not a gamer, whatever. I was on the interweb. Clearly, right? You know, clearly. But I've thought about entrepreneurship and about the phases of growth. It's, it's almost like you need a new skill set in each new level of the game, right? So in the beginning, maybe it's really, really, really storytelling, and that's always great and relevant. But, you know, there are times when you're getting the specific details. It's such, such minutia. Um, that's the thing. There's somewhat, there's, there's, there are times when the skill is about gathering your team and, and growing the team. There are times when it's about honing the team and maybe pruning. There's times when, you know, there's different stuff that comes up at each phase. So I don't know that I have one answer that works for the whole arc. I will say at the very beginning, 
you're totally right. The boldness, the energy that that is unlocked when you start to actually do the thing and try, it you only have to get enough right. You know, you only have to be right enough to <laughs> begin. And like just go, go, go with eyes wide open, knowing you're gonna get a lot wrong. And that's fine. It's cool. It's totally good. You, you don't have to apologize for it. You just refine and iterate and keep listening and learning and changing, you know, um, adjusting little little parts until you refine the thing. And, and when you hit that sweet spot of getting enough right that the world sees it and says, oh, it, this makes sense to me. I like this. I like, I, I see something here that I'm drawn to. So when there's that tipping point, right? I mean, we, we can really get business speak ish and say product market fit. Yeah, fine. When, when that happens, I'm not going to say that it's effortless. It's never effortless, but you start to work on different things, right? And then you start to nurture and sort of steward the community that's showing up. And when you, people really like what you're doing, they're going to have strong opinions and there's going to be vocal, a vocal minority that ha, want it to be one way or another way. So you have to listen, but listen in a different way and listen more, um, I think with a little more wisdom and more of a sort of a clarity on your own truths about what this ought to be or what you've wanted it to be. Um, anyway, there's so many pieces to this. I feel like I could fast forward through month after month, year after year. If I had to summarize one or two things, again, not always relevant to every phase of the journey, but one would be that listening piece, listening to the people that you want to serve. And on in the case of Kiva, it was it's a marketplace. So both to borrowers and microfinance institutions that worked with them and then also to lenders who they both sides had all sorts of interesting thoughts and opinions and requests and, you know, just listening carefully and observing their experiences and continuing to improve based on that. Not, not being afraid that you're getting it wrong, knowing that you're going to get parts wrong and then just getting better. So that's maybe two pieces, the listening and the refining, the, the constant iteration. Um, and I think secondly, you know, you, I'll say this because it's so fun to talk about and you brought it up at the beginning, but the storytelling piece that really, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and I sometimes feel a little bit like eye rolly or you know, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone here just over glorifies stories so much. I mean, I think that's terrible. I'm going to get, I'm never going to go to another cocktail party again. Everyone will hate me for saying that. But I sometimes think really like everyone here is a storyteller and thinks it's the only thing that matters and the best thing ever. And truthfully, but kind of right. <laughs> like, they, I got it. I got to give it to them. You know, they're you need to get the machinery right. You need to get the, the systems built. You need to build, you know, business build, right? Company build. But you can never kind of fall asleep at the wheel with the storytelling part of it. And the things that are new and interesting and and um, resonant maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, are that there's, there's always a, a new um, piece to draw out and the story continues and the thing itself evolves. So it's not just one thing that lasts. It's this living kind of, dynamic, uh, changing thing. So I don't think a movement is just, I don't think a movement can be static. So you have to really pay attention to that too, and keep talking, um, in a way that speaks to people to carry them along as they grow and change, as you grow and change. So it can't just be the same story, same story, same story. Um, even if, you know, I mean, even looking back and talking about the early days, new things occur to me and I see it through the lens of not just one year past or five years past, but now, like, like we said, 15, 20 years past, and I see what it was and I, I, I can make sense of it better um, with time. So that was a lot. I don't know if I summarized it well, but there you have it. <laughs> That's some, those are some thoughts. That, that was exactly what <clears throat> entrepreneurship feels like to me. Everything that you just said, it's... Mm -hmm. It's a cobweb in your brain and you try and pull it out of your brain and give it to somebody else and it kind of just crumples in your hand <laughs> a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. However, there's there's a if you stand back far enough, there's some kind of an arc that sometimes with time you can see. Yeah. But in the moment, it's just the next right thing. Then I'm listening. The next right thing. I'm listening. Yeah. Okay. Um I fell over. I'm gonna go like my wounds come back. Right. You know, right. That's it's exactly it's exactly what it feels like. And if you can hang in there, if you can keep going and keep trying, like the the gift is time, right? Just getting enough time to get it right. It, yeah. You'll figure something out. It may not be the thing you thought you were starting at the beginning, but you'll figure out a way to be useful. So I think a lot of people underestimate just showing up and 
keep like continuing to to try, continuing to um, take a swing at uh, creating a solution to a problem. So if if you want to succeed, just like stay at it, and at some point you're gonna figure you're gonna figure that out if if you mm-hmm. if you keep going through that practice and that process. Before I let you go, and I could talk to you all day, but before I let you go, the this quote that you had that I loved, which was again related to storytelling, and it said the stories we tell each other matter very much. The way that we participate in each other's stories is of deep importance. And this feels huge to me, especially right now. I've done, you know, a lot of the podcast episodes recently have seemed to have been around this theme very unintentionally by me because interviews slot in when people can do them as opposed to when I think the story should be told. Um, Because we live in a world where we have access to so many lives now. Yeah due to the digital platform, so many lives and so many stories and many of which by just sheer numbers are very different to our own. How, how have your experiences over the past 15, 20 years shaped your views on, on how we participate in each other's stories in a way that is uniting yeah. as opposed to dividing? Wonderful. So as a parent, I, I always have to start with what's happening in my home and my most important story stories are the ones that are unfolding day after day. They're small and, and sweet and um, slow and, and close to home. They're the ones, you know, in this, in this house. Um, and I think every parenting book, and I love that stuff. Like I, I read a lot of them and that's a whole other conversation, right? The truths from parenting books that actually are amazing for team management and like, interacting with your spouse and like friendships, they're just great. And it's basically because it's always about understanding the other person, you know, having empathy for them and responding in a generous way and with patience as much as you can human, humanly, you know, muster. So with my kids, when something's unfolding, one story can be my child is being a problem. The other story is my child is having a problem, right? One story is, and then, it tur- and then what does that mean for me? It means that my role goes from one thing to another. So those stories that we make up in our head all the time about what's happening for another person shape the way we interact. And if you can come to the table, if you can show up and calibrate every day to a place of generosity and assuming the best and seeing the best in another person, I just think it's always going to be better. And that's like the great challenge of life, I think, to just stay curious and generous with how we see and you know what we expect out of other people and then it, it brings the best out of ourselves as well so you know parenting's a great training ground for that all the time and I'd like to hope that then in my other interactions I emerge not uh you know with my patients tapped out or exhausted but ideally with my muscles stronger every day and all warmed up to interact with others with generosity and ready to you know um to be, to be helpful to them and to be loving to them. And yeah, that, that's, that's, that's really what jumps to mind when you bring that quote back, which I definitely wrote, I think before the kids, no, let's say maybe two, two out of the four existed, but still it's just, just as true today. So I'm glad that one lasted stood the test of time so far. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I've said on the podcast a few times, I, I get asked less frequently now, but I used to get asked a fair amount. Um, when I started the podcast, you know, it was a, business focused, you know, how to raise your influence. Mm -hmm. And I started bringing in conversations about parenting very specifically because I very much believe whether you're parenting, you know, mentoring, whether you've got nieces and nephews, it doesn't matter that small human beings are a beautiful reflection on how we lead because they're just an immediate mirror. We have the same impact on everybody else around us, just that they're very good at not showing it. But you want to know what you look like as a leader? You want to know what you look like as a person trying to influence another human being? Do it for a two-year-old. Do it for a four-year-old because you get immediate, very real feedback as to how you're doing in that space. Very true. Very true. I always thought that it was so cheesy, people talking about their kids teaching them so much. And I was like, that's super sweet. But seriously, and it's really actually very humbling and true um so if if you're open to it if you let it happen what's the final question um if i if i gave you a stage it's a question that i that i always ask if i if i gave you a stage and in front of you i could put if i had a magic wand and i could put every single 
person that you would ever want to influence. And I gave you a microphone in five minutes. What's the, what's the one thing that you would want them to know? I would pass the mic and I would say, we all have important wisdom. Let's, let's all hear as much as we can. That would be the most efficient. <laughs> that would be my hack. <laughs> so that's what I would do. I love that answer. I would pass the mic for other people. Yeah. I know what I think. I mean, it's a selfish one too, but I think it would be the best, um, yeah, the best, <laughs> the best use of time <laughs> because every person's story matters like for real. So it's a great question though. Thank you. And thank you for all your questions and thank you for being so lovely. And I do hope let's set aside a whole day one day and just keep at it. I really enjoy talking to you. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.